Uh, the middle of the week and plenty from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. And we just know we're facing into another nightmare winter when all these other kids, 140 other children, were given this drug in March and we've just been told, no, you can't have it. And we're suffering. We really are suffering. I mean, this year I, I went in, came back from my summer break and into the end of August, into the shops and you're kind of expecting back to school and the build-up to Halloween and the Christmas selection boxes and the Christmas piles of sweets and uh, were, were already um, stocked high. I couldn't believe it. 39% of teenagers in Ireland have tried these cigarettes and 18% would be uh, regular users. And we'll start with the Ryan Tupperdy show. I'm exhausted just hearing about it. Ryan's schedule leading up to the toy show is punishing, but he makes it sound like a pleasure. Let me just tell you what, what's been happening since I last met you or spoke to you. I told you I was going to be on the, on the road yesterday, so I was. And somebody, a teacher, had got in touch with me on, uh, on Instagram and said, maybe if you have time, come and visit our school. And uh, we do good work here in St. Finian's School in Finglas. And um, the kids would love to see him. So we took it upon ourselves to go up really quickly for what has to be a drive-by visit. But having said that, I think it was one of my favourite ever school visits, despite the brevity of it, uh, because I was just so taken aback by, by what I saw there by way of teachers and pupils and spirit, brackets indomitable, and effort and kindness and thoughtfulness and decency and diligence. They had, it was the best side of school teaching I think I've seen since I've started going to schools 20 years ago on this program um, and other programs. I just saw something very special happening in a school um, at every level, from the from the, the youngest child in the school to the to the head head teacher, the principal, who's in this case is Miss O'Connell or Maria. It's our first name, one of the first name schools. I said, are you calling your teachers by their first name? What are they, your sisters? What is this? When they said, no, we don't. Don't. Johnny Old Fashioned, get out of here. We don't do that here in this school. The teachers are known by their first names. But anyway, my thanks to uh, Avril Dunn, who was the teacher who initiated. She teaches third class. Went in. The kids weren't expecting me. The teachers weren't expecting me. The principal had a rough idea was coming. And my God, the reaction was so heartening and magical. And I was just looking through the window into the class and... You know, jaws dropped, eyeballs were out in stalks, mouths were grabbed, and then I went. And they really wanted to know a few things. Three things, three questions asked pretty much in every class by every pupil. One, what age are you? Two, why are you coming to us in this school? And three, do you like Fanta? Now, these were the three questions that I had to deal with. With the, It was like, it was like a, a raucous press conference with fun-sized humans asking me these questions as we went along. But the principal gave us a profile and a sense of, of what class of uh, school it is and what the children have been experiencing over the last number of years. Um, and no doubt it was similar to a lot of schools around the country. It's a beautiful desh school that has love and heart and nourishment and nurturing at its very core, at its soul. This is a school that oozes soul. It was just lovely. I, wasn't, I just want to compliment that school. St. Finian's in Finglas. My respect to you and to all uh, to all who sail in her. What a great school. I, I'm going to go back when I have more time, um, if they'll have me. But just really impressed. Those kids were so polite. I got more messages from parents of those children yesterday um, by Instagram than pretty much any time I've done a school visit. That's, 
that's how decent everyone was about it. I wasn't expecting them. I didn't need them, didn't want them, but it was just so thoughtful. So thanks to everybody. It really put fuel in the tank for the week that's in it. It showed me what it's all about. It showed me what the excitement is out there. It showed me what joy this, this show on Friday brings to people who need it and who deserve it. So that was that. Back in the car, straight to Crumlin Children's Hospital to meet this beautiful young person and her family. Her name was Ella and she was, uh, she'll be leaving Crumlin after spending, I think she said, 588 days in, in the hospital. And again, this is all about the spirit of the toy show and this is what we need to be doing and want to be doing. I was saying to the guys and my thanks to JJ who fixed this all up along with a lot of help from our friends from from um, a lot of people around the place. We'll get there in a second, but also particularly to to uh, Ashling Michelle who came along with us and Tom. And they all did a lovely job uh, to make this happen. And Ella is it was was there in the hospital uh, in Ronald McDonald House. And I really, really, uh, I'd never been to Ronald McDonald House. So I got there, met a few parents with their own children and their own troubles and their own stories. And that was fine. Everyone seemed to be doing doing great. As Joe and Nicole in uh, in the house were telling me um, that Ronald McDonald's house, I love the line he said to me, it's a, it's a place with no beeps. So when you're in the hospital every day and every night, and your soundtrack is beep, beep. And those beeps of life um, are gone for the, for the few days or the hours that you can go in there and actually watch TV or make a cup of coffee and just kind of forget about it, even though its proximity to the actual hospital is very near. And that's only right, too. Back to Ella. She had been watching the toy show in her hospital room last Christmas and was TikToking about it. JJ spotted it and said, this, this girl is great. She... She 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 can't um, get out. She couldn't come to the show, couldn't visit the set or whatever. So why don't we bring a little bit of toy show magic to her in Ronald McDonald House? I said, sign me up. Where, what do I do? She, he said, just show up. Show up on Tuesday and maybe we'll organise some presents that, that, she, that might be relevant to her life. And so we did. And she wasn't expecting us. And it was really lovely. And we got into the room. She was there with her family. She thought she was being interviewed for a documentary of some sort. And then I came out and we had a great uh, chat and encounter. Then the staff came around. It was lovely. So what music are you into? Oh, well, my favourite Irish band is Picture This. I said, great. Well, here's an album from Picture This. You're going to... Actually, do you know what? Have you been to see them? No, no. Do you know what's even nicer? You haven't been to see them, but they're here to see you. And we opened the door and Picture This walked in. I'm already not able for it. Just a couple more sleeps for the toy show. Ryan Tuberty in the morning. Now, have you been at the Roses or the Quality Street already? Well, I have. Please don't judge. In the morning, Dr. Donal O'Shea, the HSE's clinical lead on obesity, was giving us all a reminder of the cost to our health. So have you been tempted yet by the Christmas confectionery in the supermarket? Well, the season of overconsumption seems to come earlier and earlier every year. But how much of an impact is this having on our waistlines? Professor Donal O'Shea is the HSE Clinical Lead for Obesity and he's on the line now. Good morning, Donal. Good morning, Claire. I know you have a big bugbear with this, but it seems this year that it was particularly early. I mean, this year I, I went in, came back from my summer break and into the end of August, into the shops, and you're kind of expecting back to school and the build-up to Halloween. And the Christmas selection boxes and the Christmas piles of sweets and uh, were were already um, stocked high. I couldn't 
believe it. Mm-hmm. And the the issue also, and I know you've mentioned this to us before, is the price of them. Very cheap. Very cheap. So it's it's cheaper to buy a selection box than it is to buy the bars uh, individually. And I mean that's a classic uh, food and drinks industry marketing ploy. Uh, so they're targeting children online. So when kids are online, they see three junk food ads every 10 minutes they spend online. And we know the amount of screen time that our kids from the age of about seven up are getting. And that kind of advertising when you're seven, there's no filter. It's just good value. It's prompting you to feel hungry. It's prompting you towards uh, the uh, junk food. We know junk food sales are up. We know childhood overweight and obesity rates are up, spiked by the whole COVID restriction a couple of years. And, you know, we just need to keep highlighting it. Mm-hmm. We just need to keep highlighting it. You see, people will be listening now that the canny shoppers will say, well, I buy them at this time of the year or earlier. I stock them up because the prices go up closer to Christmas. Yeah, and, and but the reality is that uh, while that might be the thinking, uh, the reality is that once they're in the house, uh, for 95% of individuals, uh, the, they're consumed, and they're consumed well before Christmas. They're doled out at Halloween during trick-or-treat, and then they're stocked up again after Halloween, uh, but again... Uh, depleted before you get to Christmas and then stocked up again in the few weeks before Christmas. So the producers and the retailers then are betting on the fact that we have no willpower and no restraint. And when it comes to foods that are designed uh, to have the right amounts of fat, salt and sugar uh, so that the human brain wants more and wants more. Uh, the, the reward centres in the brain are incredibly powerful drivers of consumption and these foods are designed to light up those centres and you just go back to them and you will go back to them sometimes mindlessly uh, and, and if, if they're in the house they will be consumed. We have changed, though, haven't we? Because, I mean, you probably remember, I remember that Christmas sweets were for Christmas. They sound incredibly old now, but you just wouldn't really, you wouldn't be allowed to open them before Christmas Eve, probably. Correct. I mean, you know, if you turn the clock back 40 years and when population obesity rates in Ireland were half what they are now, uh, there was uh, the a Christmas kind of blowout, uh, an Easter blowout, and then there was birthdays. Uh, and, and outside of that, um, you know, th- th- there wasn't. Um, and and the, the biscuits and treats that, that came in were, they, they weren't wall to wall. The problem now is that to, to make an occasion of something, um, because our baseline consumption is uh, high and on a daily basis, uh, you, you have to kind of, go large go larger again and, and you know it, it's the, the the marketing and the product placement this year has reached to my mind vulgar uh, proportions and unashamedly uh, poor uh, behavior by the the food and drinks industry and donal was talking about the calories in those christmas sweets I mean, if you look at the uh, selection box, uh, that contains uh, uh, close to your total daily calorie requirement um, in, in, in kilocalories. 
so you're talking about 11 to 1300 kilocalories in your tub of uh, kind of you know roses heroes um, celebrations celebrations a, a tub of those you're talking about 2800 3200 kilocalories uh, and the problem is all those calories are nutritionally empty there's barely a vitamin or a mineral so it means to to be healthy you have to be uh, consuming your fruit veg um, and and your you know your uh, the, the foods that are giving you nutrition uh, and and you've already eaten seven or eight hundred kilocalories uh, from a, a selection box mm-hmm. and kids will get through half a selection box without any problem and 20 minutes later they'll feel hungry explain that to us why uh, because uh, what the those foods do is they uh, cause a, a little rise in your blood sugar that puts your insulin up insulin drives hunger you haven't got any nutritional benefit out of those uh, highly processed foods so your body is looking uh, for nutrition your body wants to be healthy uh, you know, I think our childhood obesity rates and overweight rates are uh, one in four in, in this country now. And what that means is that three in four have a healthy weight, which I think is a tribute to the kind of effort parents are making overall. Uh, but you can be a healthy weight and not well nourished. And if you're getting a lot of your nutrition from, uh, you know, the selection box aisle and the biscuit aisle, uh, then uh, you, you, and we're seeing this, can be deficient in important vitamins and, and minerals. So what needs to happen then when it comes to the sale, the marketing, the production of sweets, not just at this time of year, but the whole way through? Well, it is the whole way through because, you know, it, it, as is, the Christmas stuff has been out since August. So, you know, that's not a season. Uh, that's a half a year in advance. Uh, so I think uh, the, the lesson I have from the last 20 years kind of in this space is that the food and drinks industry cannot help themselves. You know, back in the old days, the obesity task force, the, the food and drinks industry said, we'll get rid of the king size Mars bar, the king size Snickers. And then out comes the duo, uh, a shareable option, which they know won't be shared. So we need to regulate I think the impact of the sugar sweetened drinks tax has shown that the reformulation that happened once a tax came in was massive. The online marketing of our kids is phenomenal. I mean, three ads every 10 minutes prompting a young brain to go look for uh, processed foods. Uh, You know, I mean, that should be banned, if not illegal. Dr. Donal O'Shea from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, e-cigarettes and under-18s, Chris Macy of the Irish Heart Foundation was talking to Rachel English about the rise of vaping in young people. Chris, I was asking what the evidence is at the moment as to how popular vaping is among the under-18s. Well, uh, uh, according to the latest figures, uh, 39% of teenagers in Ireland have tried e-cigarettes and 18% would be uh, regular users. But that was before what appears to have been Uh, really an explosion of uh, the use of disposable vapes in the last uh, 12 months. So we know that teenagers who vape are three to five times more likely to smoke than teens uh, who don't. And there's a a strong suspicion now that this is driving what has been the first increase in in youth smoking for a generation in Ireland. So 
So the Irish Heart Foundation is obviously very deeply concerned about this. Um, you know that the hard won gains of a, of a massive national effort in Ireland to reduce youth smoking uh, over a generation from 41 percent uh, down to 13 percent is going to be lost, and a whole new generation of young people is going to be addicted to nicotine and, a, and, and potentially to, to cigarettes as well. Now, the government has said that it's going to ban the sale of e-cigarettes to the under-18s. I mean, what else can it do? Well, I, I, we think the government needs to act a lot more decisively uh, than with an age ban that's already in place in the vast majority of, of EU countries and, and relatively minor additional restrictions to advertising. So... The first thing is we need to ban uh, child-friendly flavours like chocolate fudge cake and gummy bear flavour and tutti frutti. Uh, the vape industry says its its sole purpose is to help long-term smokers to quit, but if that was true, uh, really gummy bear flavour just wouldn't exist. Um, the WHO says there's 16,000 flavours out there, and uh, our view is that only tobacco flavour should be allowed because these are being uh, targeted at young people. Uh, countries like Finland, uh, Hungary, and China have 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 banned it. Uh, sorry, have have yeah have banned uh, uh, flavors bar uh, tobacco. We also need to replace bright, attractive packaging. You know that often has cartoon characters or or, or packets that look like sweets, uh, and introduce plain packs as as has happened in the Netherlands and Israel. And we need a full ban on uh, on advertising. Um, uh, at the moment, uh, there's um, a ban on print, radio and TV, and there's an online ad ban. Uh, but we think what's really fueling uh, the youth use of, of e-cigarettes is, is on social media. Mm, realistically, um, though, can the government do anything about that? I mean, can the government do anything about what's on TikTok, say? And TikTok is a huge problem here. Uh, in the UK, 45% of, of, uh, of teenage users of TikTok said they'd seen uh, um, uh, ads for, for vapes on, on those. I mean, yes, they can. You know, we, we've already, you know, uh, uh, in terms of alcohol, in terms of, of tobacco, uh, there's there's quite strong um, uh, uh, prevention there. Uh, you know, social media uh, platforms uh, that target kids can untarget them. They can make sure that, 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 that this isn't happening. And um, the, uh, the Eroctus Health Committee uh, proposed uh, the flavour ban, uh, a full ad ban, and the plain packs in its pre-legislative pre uh, scrutiny report on this. And it said that uh, specifically that this has to be looked at, you know, that the government can do more uh, to uh, to prevent uh, these ads being uh, on social media platforms. Mm -hmm. Of course, these proposals haven't yet become law, so there could be further changes along the way. Will you continue to lobby the government on this? Absolutely. I mean, we've got cross-party support in the Dáil. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's it's the Department of Health and the government that appears to be dragging its heels here. Um, and uh, what we need is is politicians to stand up. We know that uh, uh, parents and the public generally want more controls. They want, uh, you know, more controls uh, in terms of tobacco as well. Uh, other countries have moved far ahead of us in that regard. Um, and, you know, parents that we talk to are very concerned about this and very much want uh, more action to be taken. Chris Macy of the Irish Heart Foundation for Morning Ireland with Rachel English. And on the live line, Grania called Joe. She explained her campaign to get the medication Catrio for her children. Because I have two children with cystic fibrosis who have been denied a life-changing drug along with just 33 other children. Yeah. This has been going on for a while now, hasn't it? And um, we're 
six months in the battle, uh, six months into our campaign. I met with the minister a month ago who understood the urgency and the yeah. importance that these 35 kids get this drug, but we've heard nothing since. Okay. So well, all we're told is discussions are ongoing. That's all we get. And you, 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 you keep talking, Grania, because you're going to tell me why it's so important, uh, why the 35 in the view of the state have been denied and what is the daily effect, the hourly effect on the life, your lives and the life of your two uh, gorgeous daughters, Kiva and Fia. So so begin where you want to begin. When the name of the drug is? The name of the drug is Caftrio. Caftrio, yeah. Um, we signed a deal five years ago for our Canby, which was the drug of choice at yeah. the time, the wonder drug. Yeah. Um, but it didn't work for our kids. Okay. Our kids have a rarer gene and it turns out that there's 35 kids with this rare gene. So the drug opened up in March for ages 6 to 11 and we found out in March that there's 35 kids that have been omitted from this. I have two girls, Quiva's 8 and Fia is 6. Um, they're generally well, but Fia mm. has had an ongoing cough for two and a half years. and We, we did everything we could to try and fix her. She was on up to three hours a day of machines, um, antibiotics, nebulizers, nasal sprays every kind of thing we could imagine. She had a really rough winter last year. She had croup four times in the space of four months and it just knocked her. Um, but we had hope. We knew this drug was coming and we were waiting for this drug, this absolute life-changing wonder drug. And we were told, no, you're not going to get it. And as a result, she ended up in hospital for a week mm-hmm. on IV antibiotics, um, which was really tough because I have another child at home who needs all this attention and treatments and medication as well. So it's been a huge struggle for us. We we don't know what's happening. We don't know if we'll ever get it. Also to mention that it's it's eligible for these kids if they're 12 and over. So if Quiva was to turn 12 tomorrow, we can give her her birthday cake and Caftrio. Um, so we, we can't understand it. Uh, it seems to be sitting with Vertex and the HSE. But meanwhile, we struggle... At home with our kids, Fia already has been very sick over the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks. And we just know we're facing into another nightmare winter when all these other kids, 140 other children, were given this drug in March. And we've just been told, no, you can't have it. Um, and we're suffering. We really are suffering. Well, that's Grania there. Then Ruth called Joe. You are going to answer the question uh, I would ask Grania is, does Catrio work? And it does. Oh, Catrio, it works so well. My son, Harry, is 14 years old. Um, we actually live in Maynooth, which is the same town as Grania. Yeah. Um, our children used to go to school. You know, they were in the same school together. But I waited 12 and a half years um, with my husband for our son to get a medication because, like Grania's girls, he has a rare mutation. And mm-hmm. he it was eligible for him when he was 12 and a half. And... He started the drug, and when I say go, it changed his life. It it really did. We used to be in hospital annually for weeks on end, and he has not been in hospital since. He's had one antibiotic in two years, wow. and that was after he had COVID, and he got through COVID okay. He got a you know an infection after, and that's the only antibiotic he's been on in two years. Whereas before, every winter was, as Gronya said, it's a nightmare. Your every cold that comes into the house, you're like, oh, we're going to end up in hospital. He had the flu five years in a row, and he hasn't had flu since 
since he started Cap Trio. And it's not just the mm. the drug itself. Like, I was able to stop being a carer um, for him because okay. he didn't need the same care. And Please, I've gone yeah. full-time into work. Yeah. You know, I'm giving back in that way. I'm paying my taxes. You know, and it's 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 a whole family effect. You know, the fact that I was able to go back to work. I'm, my son's able to live. Um, it's all these things. My, I have a daughter as well who doesn't have CF and she doesn't have to have her parents going into hospital for weeks on end. Yeah. You know, and that had a huge effect on her growing up because she'd be... Now, my parents are wonderful and look after her, but, you know, she was like, oh, why am I missing school? You know, why do I have to go and stay with my grandparents when I want to be at home with my mum and my brother and my dad? So it's it's the family. It's the whole thing. And... It's even a lot of kids with CF have problems with gaining weight. And my son has gained 18 kilos wow. since he started CapTrio. And before? And the two and bef- years, okay. But the two years before he started CapTrio, he gained no weight. And they were talking about supplementing his feeding, um, you know, possibly needing a peg feed in years to come. Um, you know, kids with CF find it so hard to put on weight. And... And if you don't have weight on you, you can't, you know, if you lose weight with an infection, it's very hard to, to gain the weight again. And he's gained 18 kilos in two years. Incredible. Incredible. And he's, he's, I see you tell us as well, he's out running. Yes, he ran last week in the All-Ireland Finals in Rossapella in Donegal. He made the Leinster team. He runs with St. Cocas in Kilcock. And before he was on Cap Trio, he, he couldn't, you know, he, he could run, but he, he couldn't run to the same extent. He couldn't win Leinster medals. Yeah, um, you know, he's he's getting to, to live like any 14-year-old wants to do. You know, it's it's amazing. He's, you know, he's running with his peers. People don't know when he's on the, you know, on the starting line that the kid beside them has CF, you know, and he shouldn't be running in All-Ireland finals. Mm-hmm. And if he wasn't on Cap Trio, he wouldn't be running in All-Ireland finals. Um, it's changed. It's changed his life, and I'm just so happy for him because yeah, every yeah. kid and Grania's kids and every kid deserve, yeah. especially when the drug is there, you know. And and we should be at the forefront because the incidence of cystic fibrosis, as we've covered on this program for many over a decade now, is greater than uh, the, the incidences percentage-wise greater than most other uh, countries. Now, Grania, I remember when it wasn't you, but there was lots of other parents and indeed uh, people with cystic fibrosis campaigning on this programme for our Canby and it was eventually uh, licensed, and well, not licensed, eventually paid for. That, that was the big argument. But the, oh, I remember yeah. one of the arguments being made on behalf of the state at the time. Well, you know, hang on a minute. It's not going to work for everybody. I, I don't know how you answer that point, by the way, how anyone answers that point. But that was a point. You know, there's no guarantee this will work for everybody. So, Grania, can you answer that question? Now, in um, one sense, Ruth has, but in terms of the effect it had uh, has on her son and the hope that's there. But can you answer that point? I say, well, there's no guarantee it will work. Well, we need to be given the chance to test that yeah. out, you know. No, there's no guarantee. There's an awful lot of side effects with this drug as well, so we'll be months in with side effects. Um, But we haven't been given the opportunity to even see if it works for our kids. And, you know, I'm listening to Ruth talking about Harry running and my kids struggle with a flight of stairs. And 
I go down to the pharmacy, the same pharmacy as Ruth, and I pick up four bags of medication and she picks up one box of Caftrio and that's where we're at. We haven't been given the chance to see if it'll work for our kids. We've just been told no and we don't know how long we have to wait. Uh, CF is a deteriorating illness. The longer we wait, the worse our kids get. And we, like, what are they waiting for? You know, what happens if the 35 become 34? Who's responsible for that? And we're dealing with sick kids daily and they're not getting better and we're facing into winter and all the sicknesses and any of these sicknesses could land our kids in hospital needing lung transplants, needing kidney transplants, just sick and our kids aren't being given the chance to live. Grania and Ruth on the Live Line with Joe Duffy. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, it was a big toy giveaway with Smith's Toy Store, but it was a heartwarming story that unfolded when Sandra called Ryan as she prepared for her first Christmas without her lovely mother, Maraid. You might hear a little, few little toys and things in the background, sorry. Why? A bit of babbling. Oh, it's just my little boy. He's um, a bit active this hour of the morning after sleeping all night. Yes, well, sleeping all night for a lot of people is a dream. Uh, what's, what's, what's its name? He's Noah. He's five and a half months. Oh, crikey. He's only, he's like a, only a bit of a child, really, isn't he? Um, oh. um, what else have you got there in your life? Destructive, right? Yeah, I, 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 um, I just took uh, Ivy. She's three to preschool. And um, Stacey is in senior infant. She's six. She's ancient. And Ivy is... Uh, Ivy, is that Ivy-Y? Yes. That's a lovely name. That's after her granny. Well, it's kind of Christmassy, isn't it, in some way? And your 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 her granny is your mum. Um, no, it's on her other side. On the um, other side. Yeah, my mum was. Um, my mum passed away on the twelfth of October, Ryan. Unfortunately, just gone by. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Sandra. I'm sorry to Actually, hear that. Six, 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 six weeks today. So oh my goodness! Lord I'm rest her. sorry. Tell yeah. me, what was her name? Uh, she was married and she um, was wonderful, Ryan, wonderful. Of course she was. And she was, we were so, though, would you believe, beforehand. So looking forward to the toy show. And that was the tradition every year with everybody. So we're keeping it going um, okay. at Dad's this year. Was your and, was your yeah. mum, if your mum loved the toy show, she must have been a bit of crack. Oh, goodness. It was, I think, the highlight of her year. Oh, she was a messer then, properly. Oh, absolutely, Ryan. The biggest messer. And, um, yeah, I love the kids. And, um, sorry, he's pressing his fire engine. Uh, love the kids. And um, just absolutely wonderful, wonderful. Okay. And can so, I ask you how she died? Do you mind me asking you? Uh, oh, the dreaded sea. And ah, yeah. we, okay. we thought, like, maybe even next year. You know yourself, you're always Always hopeful. hoping. You live and in hope, don't you? But look, it was good for her, Ryan. She didn't suffer too much, thank God. Yeah, So, okay. um, I'm sorry I sound as if I have the whole fire brigade here in my house. You have... What part of the world are you in? Uh, near Dunmore East in um, County Waterford. And do they have a fire, a fire brigade nearby, apart from the one in your kitchen under your nose? Is there a, is there a Waterford fire brigade <laughs> service or...? Okay, yeah. and, and I st- think he's going to be one of I them was in a few say, years. <laughs> has Noah signed up yet, or are they just waiting for him um, to, you know, save the day someday in the future? Is that the idea? I think so. Okay. I think so. He's great. And well. very quickly on your mum, do you think she would get a great kick out of knowing you were on the radio with with us this this week? She would just 
roar like, laughing. Think it was the best thing in the world ever to be speaking to Ryan. Well, listen, that's great. <laughs> well, it's my privilege to be talking to you, and what a nice thing to to, you know. I know it's sad, and yet what a nice thing to remember her like this this morning together. Absolutely, yeah. Ryan. Yeah, and we, we we have to do that, and you know yourself and all the grandchildren and the kids. And I understand everything. So we just have to try and um, it's Christmas, and you might feel like curling up in a ball, but we can't. So you, we can't. Onwards and, and upwards for the kids. Sandra from the Ryan Tabridi Show. Now it's one of the most beautiful times of the year when the leaves are turning to golden amber and falling to crunchy piles to kick through on a fine day's walk. So in the morning, Dr Shane Bergen was talking all things leaves with Claire Byrne. Leaves are fantastic. Um, only a scientist go out like myself and start staring at these things and look at them in amazement. But I really do think they're incredible because they're all like little solar panels. And what they're doing is keeping uh, keeping trees alive um, and uh, about half of the trees in Ireland this time of year will drop their leaves, the deciduous ones. And remember, the way that, that plants that have leaves uh, work is really fundamentally different to the way we animals work. So we eat food, we drink water, and crucially, we breathe in oxygen. And that oxygen, which is a radical, as in it likes change, it, it breaks down bonds in our food and that releases energy. And that keeps our metabolism going and keeps us alive. And we, we call that respiration, right? That breathing in and out. And we breathe in oxygen and we exhale carbon dioxide. And all other animals do the same. But plants do something the opposite. They take in carbon dioxide, right? Thankfully. Mm-hmm. And they uh, use sunlight, right, to create food for the plant in the leaf. And that all happens in the leaf. The leaf is like a solar panel. It takes in sunlight, it breathes in, or it, it takes in carbon dioxide and it turns that into food. So, so trees are able to make their own food using leaves. Is the sunlight converting the carbon dioxide then into food that the, the plant or tree can use? Absolutely. Okay. So it takes up water from the roots and it breathes in carbon dioxide, which is carbon and oxygen. There's hydrogen in the water. You mix those things together, you get basic sugar and that's the food for trees. Now this was, an, this was a revelation to me I remember in school when I when I figured out or the teacher told us that trees don't take their food from the ground I just assume they ate from the soil they don't right um, whereas you and I have to reach for the fridge when we want to eat a tree is able to on its own just by being in light and uh, being in the atmosphere able to make its own food isn't that incredible it is incredible it is incredible and then the next question I suppose is why do we have different types of leaves different shapes <laughs> different sizes absolutely so uh, different types so firstly the big question is why are they green I suppose right they're green because they have they have a, a chemical in them called chlorophyll and th- that's the that's the the thing where the the, the, the sort of transformation uh, from sunlight and carbon dioxide into food takes place. And um, it's it's very efficient, right? So we talk about solar panels, right, that we have on the roofs of our houses. Their efficiency would pale in significance to the efficiency of a leaf to turn sunlight into usable energy, right? So we're, we're, we're only at the beginning when in our, our, our technology when it comes to doing what nature has evolved to do. So leaves are um, all different shapes and sizes and, uh, and uh, in order for them to harness sunlight in the most effective way. So if your leaf was too big, uh, it would take in way too much light and it, it would overheat. Equally... Um, if your leaf wasn't uh, green, it would also take in too much light. So the question is, why why are leaves green? Well, 
They're green because they absorb all of the other light from the sun. So the sun gives out white light. So it gives all the colours of the rainbow. And when it hits the leaf, right, it, uh, it swallows in all of the light except the green and it bounces that back. And so our eyes see the rejected light and that's the green stuff. I always find that really fascinating that that's what we see as opposed to it really being that colour. Yeah, of course, because leaves at night are black. So they're not green on their own. They're only green when light shines on them, <laughs> right? So it's a philosophical question, yeah. but they're green because they spit out the light and they spit that light out, we think, because if they were to take it all in, it would just get too hot and the water within the leaf would start to evaporate and photosynthesis, this making food from light, so wouldn't you, work. Before you come to the shape, I assume technology is trying to copy what the leaves are doing. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and not very, very well, I have to say. So uh, there, there was a project in Imperial College London that got a lot of funding around a decade ago to make an artificial leaf, right, uh, in order for us to kind of learn from nature and turn that into technology so we could harness the power of the sun for our own energy needs. But it, it, it hasn't gotten too far. We've stuck with the silicon-based solar panels and we've spoken about those on the show before. We're, we still haven't really massed the, the, the kind of, you know, duplication of that technology for our own okay. needs. So what about the shapes of leaves? Well, it's like saying, why do we have so many different types of animals, right? So we're all evolved to fit into a niche, right? So we all take advantage of uh, slight little kind of, you know, cracks in, in, in the biosphere. So like in, um, if you have, if you go out into a, a native Irish woodland, you'll see all different shapes and sizes of leaves and they're all there to try and eke out an existence with the, with the competition of their neighbours. Now we do see that um, in, in more tropical areas, leaves tend to be bigger and they tend to be juicier. Uh, whereas when you move north up into colder places, leaves tend to get smaller and they tend to be less likely uh, deciduous, as in losing their leaves in the autumn, and more likely to be evergreen and have needles instead mm-hmm. of juicy leaves. Skinny and hardy. <laughs> exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I suppose I, I could say like Scandinavians, but I won't. <laughs> you, could, you might get in trouble for saying that. Now, what about those extreme leaves, the really unusual ones? Tell us yeah, about some of those. Yeah, absolutely, right. So the, there's some crackers out there. There's a species in the Amazon uh, whose leaves can reach 2.5 metres. In old money, that's eight foot. So that's much taller than a human, right? This is a whopper of a leaf and it's a deciduous leaf. Like, you know, it's it sits there on the tree. There's some other ones, there's tiny ones, there's an aquatic plant whose leaves are small enough to go through the eye of a needle, right? So from, from the enormous to the to the absolutely minute. Some leaves are hydrophobic, as in they are fantastic at expelling water from their surface because a dirty leaf or a wet leaf is one that can't work that well in terms so of water taking energy. Repellent? Yeah, and the lotus leaf is the famous one there. And then, of course, there are nasty leaves as we would see them. So we think of nettles, right, mm-hmm. uh, which have evolved to protect themselves from predators by having little spikes on them. And there's a tree in Australia called the stinging tree who's said to be the worst stinging plant of all. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Avoid him. Absolutely. So why then, you mentioned deciduous trees and evergreens a couple of times there. Why do some trees lose their leaves, Shane, and some don't? So it's all about energy conservation. So the trees at this time of year um, are, are going into like a kind of a dormant season. They, they hibernate effectively at latitudes uh, like where we are here in Ireland. And so some of them make the decision when 
the light levels drop and the temperatures drop to shut off the supply of water to their leaves and that turns them from green to all the colours and they drop their leaves and they just stay still basically until until nature signals them in the spring to start again. But uh, others have decided, you know, making all those leaves is, is, a, is a costly um, affair. So they say we're, we're going to have less efficient leaves like needles or waxy leaves like a holly tree. And we're going to hold on to them all year. It may not be as efficient as the juicy deciduous leaf, but at least we'll have them for the whole season. So it's about a balance. And mm-hmm. uh, in nature, you'll always see that there's huge diversity of, of things that are all trying to find their kind of their their local um best case scenario. And of course, when we talk about biodiversity, we tend to think of animals. But of course, biodiversity also applies to all the trees and grasses and leafy substances that we have in in our world. And I like how you attribute decision making to the trees. (laughs) Yeah, actually, of course, evolution isn't conscious. But yeah, I I have done that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, And anyone listening to this will know, particularly right now, that falling leaves can cause problems like on train tracks or blocking drains or just being a bit of a a nuisance around the place when it comes to slips and falls. Have you tried to do this to work out how many leaves fall, let's say in Dublin? Yeah, physicists love these types of problems. We call them Fermi problems. They're kind of back of the envelope calculations, Claire. And um, I, I, I do this one every year with, with undergraduates in, in UCD. And I had asked them every autumn, how many leaves do you think fall in Dublin each year? Mm-hmm. Right. And the standard reaction to that is, you know, what has this got to do with science? And also, that's just a ridiculous question. Have we nothing better to be doing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there is, there's a lot of, a, a lot to be said for doing problems like this because you take something that seemingly is kind of incomprehensible and you have to turn it into a problem that you could solve. So you break it down. So if I was to say to you, how many leaves fall in Dublin every autumn? You might break that into two parts. You might say, well, how many leaves are on an average tree? Right, that's one part. And then you'd say, okay, So if I know that and I also were able to figure out how many trees there are in Dublin, I could make an estimate. Right. So I can I made an estimate just by going out and have a look right at at your average tree. It says how many leaves are on it? Is it one leaf, 10 leaves, 100, etc. So I reckon there's about 10,000 leaves on a tree. Right. Okay. And then the next part, how many trees are in Dublin? So well, how big is Dublin? Dublin could be seen as a rectangle, right? 50 kilometres long, 20 wide. That's an area of, of a thousand square kilometres. And of course, Dublin isn't covered in trees. So I'd make another estimate and I'd say, well, maybe 1% of it is covered in trees. So that's 10 kilometres squared. And then I'd say, well, how many of them are deciduous? I guess half. So that's five kilometres squared of Dublin is covered in deciduous trees. And I think, well, how many trees are in that area? You can see the way my, my mind works. Um, I say, well, what if one tree had a footprint of around five metres by five metres? So that's 25 metres squared. Dividing <laughs> one number by the other, I estimate there's around 200 deciduous trees in Dublin, right? Mm-hmm. Of course there isn't, but there could be approximately that number, right? If I multiply my guess for how many trees there are by how many leaves I reckon there are on each tree, I get a whopping two billion leaves fall in Dublin every autumn. Dr Shane Bergen from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ray Darcy Show, the life of Irish suffragette Anna Haslam. Now, if I was to say the name Anna Haslam, you. Would you know about her? No, you, you probably don't. And you probably don't know that it's the centenary of her death next Monday. Well, uh, a lady who knows all about Hannah 
Anna Haslam and is going to tell us about her is Carmen Lee Callig and uh, Carmen Lee Callig joins me in studio. Good afternoon, Carmel. Good afternoon, Ray. Uh, and you didn't know anything about Anna Haslam? No. Uh, so uh, what, what piqued your interest? So quite by accident, I was in St. Stephen's Green um, about four years ago and I happened to sit on the bench that is dedicated to Anna and her husband, Thomas. And I looked at the inscription and I said, how come I've never heard about this woman? So I went away, did some research and I really feel she merited a book. Right. So, what, yeah. Can you remember roughly what the inscription said? The inscription said, uh, it's actually in the book, it's dedicated to herself and her husband Thomas for their work uh, in the enf- enfranchisement of women. Right. Yeah. So, so she was an Irish suffragette. Yes. Right. Born in Yall. Yeah, go on. 1829. And lived a long life through the famine uh, as a Quaker, worked disproportionately, I'd have to say. And that's when you're looking for a, a subject, Ray, and this is my fourth centenary Irish history title, it has to grab you and there has to be something to keep you. Like everything, interest makes you want to, it motivates you. So I read um, the adult books. There, there were mainly chapters about Anna and her husband and I am um, it's a happy ending because yeah. she got to vote. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's a, a, an extra prize if you like. So tell us about it. born in Yall. Yeah. Uh, what were her family like? They, she was yeah. born into a Quaker family. Born obviously. into a Quaker family. Yeah. She was the 16th of 17 children. Oh, her father was a corn miller in Kinsale Beg and again because I don't know the area that well I had to go down and drive. Mm. So the last thing you want is inaccuracies in your book. And um, the the father was a corn miller, Abraham Fisher. She was born Anna Fisher, Anna Maria Fisher. And, um, you know, the Quaker, there's something very attractive as well about the Quaker ethos, you know, their beliefs, um, their way of life, the simplicity. 200 years ago, uh, girls were given the same education as boys. You know, that that sort of stuff was just dragging, (laughs) drawing me in all the time, Ray. So, yeah, um, yeah, so she was the 16th of 17 children, homeschooled till she was 11, then went to Newtown, which is only over the border in County Waterford. But at that time, it would have taken 10 hours in horse-drawn carriage to travel the 50 miles. So this, again, you're always looking for something that children might just cock their ears up a little bit more for. So, um, yeah, she was there for two years. Then, as was the tradition, she went over to Castlegate School. It's now known as the Mount. So that's a Quaker school in England. Yeah, Quaker boarding schools all the time. So again, you know, depending on what family you were born into, that was the path you followed, like Mm. like for Mm. everybody. Um, Yeah, and then she trained as a teacher, which was 1840s, you know, uh, met her husband was very she was she only taught for one year in Ackworth and, and all these schools survive today you know Newtown the Mount and this is the one nice bit of the research you get to go and visit places associated with the person so that was lovely and everybody has been so helpful and courteous right down to the editing of the book um, so How then, did herself and Tom meet? So he was teaching again this displays the equality she had a teaching job mm. in the same school. I suppose the two Irish people, he was from Mount Melick. You know, they were similar age. He's about four years older than her. And uh, 
got talking in the staff room. I'm not too sure. But they anyway, they both left on the same day. Again, I was able to find records of her time. She earned the princely sum of £20 for her year as an assistant teacher. He went to London and she came back to Yall and it was the height of the famine right. at this stage. So again, there was, I suppose, um, a grip for me there with the famine. I hadn't written about that before and it's obviously something we all know a little bit about. And again, displaying what, I mean, there were 3,000 Quakers at the time of the famine in a population of 8.5 million. Disproportionately. But because of their business networks, they were able to act quickly. And also a lot more than that, they were able to put their own, invest their own money. But Anna's real passion was to secure the vote for women. I call it the pioneering, uh, her the pioneering suffragette because she was the first. Now, when I was growing up, Ray, I'd heard about um, Hannah Shee Skeffington, you know, but um, I'd never heard about Anna Haslam. So she was the first Irish suffragette. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in the book, I make a distinction because I didn't want to call the book pioneering suffragist. There's a slight difference of spelling, but suffragist is the peaceful suffragette. Uh-huh. Whereas as we know to get attention uh, you know the Hanishi Skeffington the and protests others. protests that yes. races and all sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. But um, Anna Haslam uh, her was a, her way was a peaceful you know she was an educated articulate woman she could write to MPs of the day and just worked tirelessly behind the scenes and also her husband I, I must uh, you know talk about him because of the time, even though the Quakers believed in equality, they lived in an Ireland where women's voices weren't heard. No, we know. <laughs> so having him there at yes. the meetings and having his uh-huh. support and having him writing, uh, you know, and, all and helped. Their relationship was described as idyllic. Yes. So again, um, you know, for some reason, Thomas had a falling out with the Quakers. And as a result, they couldn't marry in the traditional meeting house ceremony. And uh, in 1854, again, I was able to go back to the Cork Registry Office and see the uh, marriage certificate and see that her two witnesses were fishers. So I don't think they fully fell out with her family, Ah, you know. But uh, yeah. And how did they refer to each other? Um, My dear and my darling and love. And within a week of getting married, which again was so progressive in many ways, they decided to commit their lives to the good of others and in particular the progression of women and women's rights by not having children of their own. Now that I'm sure raised a few eyebrows because she was one of 17, you know. And um, yeah, it's the commitment, the lifelong commitment is the thing that I just... Is awesome. Yeah. You know. uh, and we heard an awful lot in the other centenary uh, celebrations that oftentimes women were written out of history. Now, how do you write somebody out of history? I don't know, but just yeah. omitted out, of, out yeah. of history. So it's important that we know about yeah. Anna Haslam yeah. and her contribution to get the vote. Yeah. Uh, and you say it's a happy ending. Yes. So she was in her 90s. She was just coming up to her 90th birthday. So that very important election of the 14th of December 1918 when Sinn Féin had the landslide victory, she, um, women over 30 were allowed vote women, educated women and women with property were allowed to vote. Unfortunately, and when I went back to Newtown to talk to students there a couple of months ago, Ray, um, they told me they went awe when they read this part of the book. Thomas had predeceased her by a year. And after uh, being by, by her side. He didn't, he wasn't alive to witness it. Unfortunately, no. I'm sure he was there in spirit, but um, 
she was brought along. She united all the different hues of Irish history. All women and men were there, you know, with the bouquets of flowers for her to congratulate her because they knew it was the first very important step. And within four years, of course, with the Irish Free State, then women over 21 uh, got the vote. So she died eight days before that. But I think I think she would have been happy enough yeah. that she had got to where she did. Carmelou Kelly from The Ray Darcy Show. Now, we're all only human, so it's part of life to shed a tear every now and again. And on Today with Claire Byrne, the question of whether it's ever okay to cry in work. Psychologist Sinead Brady was talking to Claire. It's a bit taboo, isn't it? Crying in the office. Nobody knows quite what to do when it happens. Nobody knows quite what to do when crying happens. And I think what happens to us is we want to protect the person. We want to mind the person. We are, for the most part, empathic, kind people. And when we go to work, we're no different. Um, So when somebody cries, we automatically want to try and help. But workplaces are set up to be quite stoic and we kind of think once the Langard is around your neck and we clock in, this kind of corporate identity takes over mm-hmm. and we're not quite sure what we should do. Complicated by the fact that post-COVID, we're not really sure if we should hug somebody, touch somebody or how we should react, you know, to emotions at so, all. So is that why we, we adopt the work personality? Is that why if people are in that moment and they feel like they're going to cry or they are crying, that the first thing they feel alongside that emotion is embarrassment. Yeah, and there's a sense of shame because workplaces for a very long time were kind of just ultra, and they still are, places where it's business or personal and the two don't combine. But in the last 20 years, the boundaries between work and life have collapsed so greatly that work and life all happen in the same places and spaces. So... We never really have been taught how to deal with emotions at work. And I suppose if you think of any emotion, so crying is one emotion, anger is another emotion, laughter is, a, is, a, is another emotion. And we don't, we're more used and more comfortable with dealing with laughter. We're not very comfortable with anger, but we accept it a little bit more because mm-hmm. we're kind of thought that workplaces, by necessity, almost have to have an element of risk-taking behaviour, a little bit of anger, a little bit of cut and thrust, a little bit of being impersonal in order to make them work. The reality is they don't have to be like that. Um, We can have very human workplaces where we manage and lead from the position of human nature and people. And where we have humans, we will have the range of emotions from anger to laughter to crying and sadness. Okay, but... When we see somebody crying, is it easier to deal with it if we know where the tears are coming from? You know, if if you know that the tears are happening because of a a personal situation, someone may have had some news, that might be easier to cope with from a colleague perspective than there's just been a massive row or that person has been you know, told off for performance or, or, you know, a work-related issue that might be harder to deal with? Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, we've all been in the workplace where something has happened. Somebody maybe has got really bad personal news or even, I mean, if you're in one of the tech companies at the moment and you happen to have received one of those emails, Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to cope and to help and support that kind of, I suppose, emotional response to a, a human awful situation. Um, When somebody has had a performance review situation or where maybe a boss has been or a leader has been quite angry and they've cried in response to that, you can kind of feel a little bit like, well, how do I handle this? Because I don't want to get on the wrong side of that person and and so on. But I think it's where we kind of 
just again extend a hand of kindness and we begin to normalise these feelings like if you've had a bad performance review the likelihood is you're going to feel emotional about it. Your response may be tears, your response may be anger and if your response is tears maybe it's just the opportunity to say to somebody I see that you're under a little bit of pressure would you like a moment or would you like to go for a coffee or can I sit with you? And sometimes just sitting beside somebody is enough um, because it means they have a little bit of protection and they don't feel like the whole world is looking at them and that they are on their own. On the other hand, they may just want to go to the bathroom and they may want that little bit of time to themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think as individuals, the time has come where we can own our emotions a little bit more and where it's okay to say, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with this performance review. My career and my job is deeply important to me. I know things haven't been going well for me. I'm upset. Can I come back to you when I feel a little bit more equipped to deal with this and then have the conversation? Mm -hmm. So it can be a little bit of both. It can be a little bit of how our colleagues manage it, a little bit of how a boss manages it and a little bit about how we manage it ourselves. So so what you said there sounds very reasonable. You Mm. know, that somebody would sit there and say, I just need to come back. But if you're saying that through a flood of tears and you can't get the words out because you're choking on those Mm -hmm. tears... Will your boss's perception of you be that you're somebody who is weak and immature? So that's a really good question. So on the first instance, we have research, lots of research over 25 year period um, that shows, and it's it's from Harvard, that shows C-suite leaders don't see a response like that to a a performance review or to something going wrong has been a show Mm -hmm. of weakness. What are C-suite leaders now? Sorry, so (laughs) C-suite leaders are your, um, so the CFO, COO, so your chief executives, some of those, like a director of, um, a director of like a HR. High, or high level manager. High, correct. Thank yep. you, Claire. Um, so that's, and they don't see that as a show of weakness. They just see that as a reaction in a moment. Mm-hmm. And it's when you come back and follow up, they see, okay, well, so this person had a response and they're coming back and they're they're managing that. Um, so it's not seen as a sign of weakness. What it is seen as if you cry Overtly. So if every time there is an interaction, if every time something doesn't go your way, your response is to cry, that is an issue um, because that can be seen as a form of manipulation, perhaps. Weaponising your tears. Correct. The same way as some people weaponise their anger or their humour. Sinead Brady from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.